0: Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truths and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter.
3: Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of the Joint Action Podcast, where we have the opportunity to talk about, does platelet-rich plasma work? Now, we recently published the results from a large, well-conducted, randomized control trial investigating the effects of platelet-rich plasma injections for knee osteoarthritis. These injections are widely done in the US, at least an annual budget of about $200 million a year. Most of them are out of pocket costs. So these are paid for by people who are receiving the injections. And to date, the evidence base suggested that there was some suggestion of positive benefit, but the quality of the trial literature wasn't substantive enough for these to be recommended in any osteoarthritis guidelines. So we set out on this journey to do a randomized controlled trial to properly and rigorously evaluate that question. And today we're joined by Professor Kim Gunnell to discuss the results of that study. Professor Kim Bunnell is a research physiotherapist and her current positions include the Redmond Barry Distinguished Professor and Director of the Center for Health and Exercise and Sports Medicine in Physiotherapy at the School of Health Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Kim's an NHMRC investigator fellow and director of the NHMRC Center of Research Excellence in Translational Research in Musculoskeletal Pain. She leads a multidisciplinary team, including people from physiotherapy, medicine, exercise science, podiatry, and psychology. Kim's research focuses on conservative management of musculoskeletal conditions with a particular focus on osteoarthritis and an emphasis on the role of exercise in both prevention and management. Hello, Kim, and welcome to the show.
4: Hi, David. Thanks for having me on
3: again. As Kim just alluded to, she's been on once before. So we're going to actually skip a lot of the introductory questions that we usually have for guests because I've already tortured poor Kim with those before. And specifically, if you want to go back and listen to more about Kim and her personal life, you can look at that in an episode early on, shortly after the pandemic started, called How Does Exercise Help? But today, we're focused on a recent trial that came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association about platelet-rich plasma that Kim led, that I was pivotally involved in, that was run in both Sydney and Melbourne, and has created a little bit of a storm around the evidence that we've come out with that's a little bit, I guess, controversial. And we really want to delve into that today. So this is going to be a conversation. It's not necessarily going to be sort of a question and answer session. And so I'm going to open it up a little bit by just talking a little bit about what platelet-rich plasma is and and what it's thought to do. But I guess in the first instance, because people have heard me talking for the last two minutes, I'm going to let Kim start to speak and then uh, elaborate a little bit further on what she says. So Kim, what is platelet-rich plasma?
4: Well, David... It's a product that's made from one's own blood and basically you spin the blood and with a centrifuge and you separate out the different aspects of the blood and then you take off the part of the blood that has a lot of the platelets in it and platelets contain lots of proteins called growth factors and so forth and these growth factors are thought to be really important in healing of tissues. And so it can be, it's generally injected, it can be used for joints or ligaments or muscles, skin. So it's been used across a variety of different areas of medicine, not just in treating osteoarthritis.
3: Yeah, no, that's a perfect description. And as Kim's saying, basically, A person comes along, they have some blood taken, and then it's spun down, and that platelet-rich layer is taken off the blood and re-injected, in this instance, back into the knee that's affected, but as Kim's saying, it's been used for a whole range of other purposes and um, is largely thought to be efficacious based around small granules that are contained within the platelets that have the capacity to release factors that are thought to be reparative and growth factors and what we would call in, in science anabolic processes. Now, Kim, as you know, this has been used for, for many years in lots of different aspects of medicine, not necessarily just in osteoarthritis. For osteoarthritis, what's the current status of the evidence?
4: Yeah, so at the time that we sort of started our study, there hadn't been a lot of clinical trials where you, know, you, you randomise participants into groups and you compare the platelet-rich plasma with a placebo or an inert substance such as saline. So there'd been some trials of that. Most of the trials had compared platelet-rich plasma with another product called hyaluronic acid. And some of the studies have shown benefits with regards to platelet-rich plasma in terms of reducing pain and improving people's function. Others hadn't. Uh, And the problem with many of the studies was That they had issues with their methodology particularly some had small sample size but particularly around blinding of participants and assessors that is the patients and the doctors knew whether they were having the saline or the hyaluronic acid or the platelet-rich plasma and that can introduce bias in studies because you know you expect that you're going to get better so it's much better if you blind the patients and the assessors so you know the evidence was kind of mixed there was some suggestion that there were positive benefits and i suppose that's the impetus for our study
3: yeah and i think as kim's alluding to that the intent in when we first did this study is that some of the results were suggestive of this having quite a positive influence on pain and function but the evidence base to date wasn't rigorous enough in terms of the quality of the trials for any guidelines that are out there at the moment to support the use of this particular therapy and so you know, we started out with an intent to test in a rigorously designed trial uh, whether this was more efficacious than saltwater or saline, which is a quite common injection that's used as a comparator and thought to be an inert or an inactive comparator in the context of osteoarthritis. Um, and as as Kim's alluded to, there's lots of systematic reviews and meta-analyses that are out there that look at the use of platelet-rich plasma and comment on the methodology that's been used and you know as Kim's saying there are issues around quality that often pertain either to sample size or to the adequacy of blinding of participants or assessors now Kim I'm going to get into this in a, another podcast soon about the use of saline the use of salt water as a comparator in the context of osteoarthritis it's it's probably a little bit controversial at the moment particularly in the exercise community but biologically what do you think if any salt water is likely to do over and above a dry needle is it, is it likely to lavage the joint is it likely to wash it out is it likely to have any efficacy or activity in the joint
4: so well, that's what people think that you put the saline in and you dilute the inflammatory markers or products in there and by doing so you reduce inflammation so there is some suggestion that that might be occurring in terms of the actual science or the literature evidence supporting it. I'm not exactly sure. You might know better in terms of whether that is, is sort of sound.
3: Yeah, it's pretty, pretty limited, to be honest. And, you know, we, we know from other studies that have specifically looked at lavage, which is done arthroscopically, that that is similarly ineffective. I guess the great comment that we do have here, though, is that the whole concept of invasion contextually introduces a factor that influences perception of the people who are in in the trial, that this is likely to be uh, beneficial or efficacious in relieving pain. And so that we know from lots of different studies now that have looked at the effect size or the, the size of that placebo effect, that it's quite large. And in the context of an invasive type procedure, an injection, Uh, that that placebo effect is is even larger. Um, And so we were comparing it against a known tested placebo that we know has a relatively large effect on pain and function. But that is the standard comparator that's used in most injection trials. And we know that, you know, salt water is very cheap. It's relatively safe. And in that context, it's really hard to justify the use of something that we can't demonstrate is better than that saltwater injection. As we mentioned a moment ago, the use of platelet-rich plasma is used for a whole range of other conditions, and it, it's been tested for, you know, tendinopathy, osteoarthritis, and other joints. And more, more recently, there was a similar trial that looked at the use of platelet-rich plasma in ankle joints, which was the focus of an editorial that came out in the same issue of the paper that Kim was the lead author on. Now, before we get into, I guess, some of the criticisms, let's dig into what this particular platelet-rich plasma trial found, Kim. So do you want to just give us, a, I guess, a brief overview of the main results?
4: Sure. I'll just firstly summarise what we did. So we had 288 participants that we recruited who had mild to moderate radiologically severe osteoarthritis and symptoms of their knee, and then they were randomly allocated into the two groups, the PRP group and the saline group. And all participants were tested for their pain and and symptoms with questionnaires. But we also were interested in structural outcomes, which I didn't mention before. So they had an MRI of their knee at baseline. Then they underwent three injections of either PRP or saline at weekly intervals. And then they underwent the testing again with the questionnaires at eight weeks. And then at 52 weeks, we re-measured them for their symptoms as well as another MRI to look at the structural features in the joint. And the results, we had two primary outcomes. Our two primary outcomes were knee pain, measured by visual analogue scale over the past week. And the other primary outcome was a structural outcome of medial tibial cartilage volume. And we found that Both groups had substantial improvements in pain, as as you mentioned before, David, that would be of a magnitude that we would say was clinically relevant, you know, around two units on a 0 to 10 scale. So that is something that we would deem clinically relevant, but there was no difference in the amount of improvement between the two groups. With respect to the structural outcome, neither group changed a lot. I think both the groups lost around about a one percent of their tibial cartilage volume but again there was no difference between the two groups and we were hoping that we might have seen less loss of cartilage in the PRP group but again no difference there and we also measured a range of secondary outcomes and we had about 31 outcomes in total and the majority of those 29 out of the 31 didn't show any difference between the two groups think the only ones that we found where there was some benefit in favour of the PRP group was a global rating of change where the participant says that they were better or much better or worse and that was in favour of the PRP group but one of the other structural outcomes was in favour of the saline group so overall you know not a lot of difference at all really between the two groups.
3: Yeah. And I guess just to touch upon that, because I would imagine for a lot of people, they'll look at that global rating and say, well, obviously that's the measure we should have focused on as our primary outcome. But if you've done 30 tests, how many of those would you anticipate would be positive by chance?
4: Yeah. And statistically, you're going to come up with a, a couple coming out of being positive just because you've done so many statistical tests and that's just a potential explanation.
3: Yeah. So obviously 30 outcomes, and that's both short-term symptom outcomes as well as longer-term symptom and structural outcomes, demonstrating no difference between the groups. And obviously in the context of a trial, the purpose of doing the trial is not necessarily just to say, has the platelet-rich plasma made a difference, but has it made a difference that's better than what we would see with a saltwater injection? And what we can convincingly say at the end of this trial is that we're confident that using this particular preparation, uh, that that hasn't demonstrated a difference for either short-term pain and function, long-term pain or function, or structure on MRI. So both from a symptom and a structure perspective, we're confident that this particular platelet-rich plasma preparation doesn't have a benefit. Now, the paper, as mentioned, came out about two weeks ago in the Journal of the American Medical Association. It's had about 40,000 downloads. It has an altmetric score, which tells you about its prominence. And an altmetric score sort of above 100 is pretty good. This is upwards of about 600 already within a couple of weeks. So it's generating quite a lot of interest out there in the community. Some of that interest on social media has been less than enthusiastic. It's probably the simplest way to describe that. Um, And so that if you look at some of the commentary, either on Twitter or on LinkedIn, Know, some comments are being made there that we should be shamed with our conduct, that our results are appalling, that Kim, as, as a person who's not a clinician, why are you leading this study? Some concerns that were raised towards me about industry bias, and I do do some work for different companies on disease-modifying agents. But let's let's dig into that a little bit, because obviously this comes from a community of people that I guess would call themselves regenerative medicine specialists or orthopedic specialists who are doing quite a lot of these injections and potentially redeem money from that. So potentially have their own biases. How best to attend to some of those concerns? Should we, Kim, just focus on the science and the credibility and the rigor of the study? Or should we respond in kind? Um, Because I know social media can be a bit of a cesspool with regard to some of the commentary. And I'm not sure necessarily responding in kind is going to be wholeheartedly productive. What do What are your thoughts on that?
4: Well, I'm not a big responder on social media at the best of times anyway. So I felt that this probably wasn't the time to become active on social media and I think it's difficult to have good conversations in that context so I haven't really done a lot of responding I've certainly read them and from that perspective I suppose the one from you know, saying that I'm a physiotherapist and not a regenerative medicine specialist that's fact <laughs> but I think you know everyone on a research team brings different expertise to that project my expertise that I was bringing was someone who's worked in osteoarthritis for 20 years or so, has conducted and led you know, more than 30 clinical trials and published them in high-quality trials, and so I was bringing a lot of that expertise in there, and you know, I certainly don't have a bias. I've published studies in JAMA where we showed that aspects of physical therapy were not effective for osteoarthritis and you know, other many treatments as well, so we weren't setting out to specifically show that it wasn't effective and we're very disappointed you're always very disappointed at the end of a four-year trial to come up with negative results.
3: Yeah and you know I think to what Kim's saying there you know obviously from a clinician standpoint there are a range of clinicians from different disciplines involved in this particular trial that represent expertise that would be likely doing this in clinical practice including uh, musculoskeletal radiologists including rheumatologists and other clinicians so I don't I don't think Kim, not being a practicing doctor necessarily has any uh, ramifications on this at all. I think it's probably more important that she has skills in conducting high quality trials. And from the viewpoint of the industry bias here, this is a study that was sponsored by the National Health and Medical Research Council in Australia. So that's our federal government. They're paid for by taxpayer dollars. There was a company that was involved because we were using a commercial kit called Regen Labs. And... They provided their kit at no cost to us, but similarly did not provide any other sponsorship and was not involved in the design or the the development of the manuscript. So to suggest that there was some bias inherent and involved in the conduct of the work, I'm not entirely sure where that comment specifically comes from. There were some scientific criticisms, separate from the more defamatory comments that people were making, that were levelled at issues around platelet numbers with this particular commercial preparation, with the size of the needle that we were administering the platelet-rich plasma through, with the use of guided ultrasound preparations and whether we were sticking in this in the right part of the knee. So let's just chat a little bit about some of that commentary. I guess in the first instance, we'll talk a little bit about the platelet numbers. We know that for platelet-rich plasma, there are different preparations that are out there that have different uh, platelet numbers and different quality platelets and different leukocyte numbers. This particular preparation has been found in RegenLab studies to have 1.6 times the number of platelets uh, that would normally be present in a person's blood. It's a relatively leukocyte or white cell-free preparation, and Some of the commentary that's come back suggests that platelet-rich plasma shouldn't be called that until the platelets are two times above the normal blood concentration. Where that number is coming from is difficult to know, and there are different commercial preparations that are out there that have different platelet concentrations. To suggest that a small-gauge needle is likely to be the cause of why our platelets were ineffective and that they were being sheared as they were being injected, again, is potentially a leap of faith given how commonly and widely this potential commercial operation is being used. But Kim, any thoughts or expansion on those issues around either platelet numbers or the particular methodology that we used for putting the platelet in there?
4: Yeah, look, I think it's a really tough one because this is the problem in the field is that there's no standardised preparation and everyone uses something different. everyone thinks that their way of doing it, the number of injections, the timing of the injections, the amount that's going in, you know the, the preparation they're using you know, is what works. but it's so variable and you know we knew this at the outset and so we did a literature review before we started the study and looked at what were the features of the products that had been used and the regimes that seemed to be most effective. And so sort of picked that. And at that time, you know, three injections, weekly intervals, the centrifuge speed and all of that was what we chose based on that view. What we also did was we did a survey, I think, around about 60 clinicians who were using PRP around the world and we asked them what did they think. And they also said this is what we're planning to do. So we actually sent them what we were planning to do and asked them, you know, what do you think about this? And we got back that many different opinions, you know, some, yes, that's good, others not. So it was, it was a really difficult space to come up with, you know, a, a, a regimen that we thought would suit everyone. And we knew that that's what would happen, that when we published, if we a negative result, that that's what would happen, that people would say, oh, but you didn't do it this many times or you didn't do six injections. And so I suppose at the time we chose a regimen that was, in the literature, um, most suitable. And we chose a product that was out there and being used. And I think also from the literature, there's it doesn't seem that they're just only the studies that are positive are those that have used concentrations that are higher. And in fact, a problem with many of the studies was that they didn't report at all their platelet concentration. So in many of the studies, you don't know at all what was being injected. In some that had used commercial products, at least you could you know check what the commercial the manufacturers said the platelet concentration was. But there's been studies that have been positive that have used the preparation that we've used, one that just came out this year, and, you know, others that have used higher concentrations that haven't necessarily been positive either. So it is a tricky space.
3: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, obviously, in the context of science, where there are a lot of inherent biases, as Kim said At the outset, we tried to do this in a very balanced and thoughtful way and to seek the um, input of stakeholders before we conducted the study. Now, in the interest of complete transparency, what we'll do in the show notes is include a link to where the paper is published. We'll include a link to a really helpful infographic that Kim's team in Melbourne put together that I think helps to illustrate the results of the studies quite well, as well as a couple of media stories for those people that want to dig into a little bit more about that. Now, at present, platelet-rich plasma has not been recommended in any osteoarthritis guidelines for management of the disease. Similarly, for most people that want to get this, it's something that they need to pay out of pocket because there are no regulatory agencies, no government authorities that have advocated that this should be subsidized. So for most people it carries with it a substantial cost in the order of somewhere between $500 to sometimes $2,000 an injection for a series of those injections. Kim, in the back end of the trial, knowing the evidence that we have there and the fact that guidelines don't advocate for this in addition to the results of this particular trial, what would you tell to listeners who are out there considering getting an injection of platelet-rich plasma?
4: Have had some people, some patients email me and say, you know, I was, you know, what should I do? And I think we always practice, you know, patient, well, we should practice patient centered care where patients are given, you know, the evidence that we have to date and the risks and benefits of different treatments and they can weigh up what treatment's going to best suit them. I think to date is the good editorial that Jeff Katz wrote, you know, given the fact that there was the ankle osteoarthritis paper that you mentioned that also found negative results but did use a product that had higher platelet concentrations together with ours. I think at this stage, as he said, probably worth pausing on recommending or using platelet-rich plasma until other high-quality studies can come out and, and people want to test the, the higher platelet concentrations, you know, then if we have better evidence to support that. But at this stage, you know, I would suggest to patients that you know, other effective treatments are out there that they you know, should be doing first exercise weight loss they're the ones that people should be doing and then if you don't think they decide knowing that the evidence at this stage about platelet-rich plasma is not really there but they're happy to pay for it they know that there are relatively few side effects then that's you know that's up to them they can go in with their eyes wide open but certainly not to ignore or not to undertake those core recommended treatments that we have and self-management in terms of exercise and weight loss
3: Yeah, and really just to reinforce a lot of what Kim's saying there is that, you know, there are a number of really good and effective treatments for osteoarthritis that we would strongly encourage people with osteoarthritis to pursue, particularly around exercise, losing weight, maintaining physical activity and knowing more about the disease. In the context of osteoarthritis, we know that there are a number of treatments that are widely done that there is now good evidence to suggest that they don't work. And there I'm particularly thinking about things like arthroscopies of knees, the use of opioids. And probably now we would also put the plate-rich plasma in that category until better evidence comes along. For those patients who are, are pursuing it, be cognizant of the evidence, be cognizant of the costs, also the small potential for harms associated with this. And for clinicians who are out there who are doing this, I would just really strongly encourage you to be completely transparent, you know, talk about what the evidence base is or not. And in addition, obviously represent fairly what the cost of this is to you um, and what money that it is that you're making from this. Because I think at the end of the day, as Kim said, this should be about best evidence care for patients who are presenting with this symptomatic disease. So, yeah, I think from our perspective, we'll provide a lot of those resources to you. I guess the key message that I wanted to come out from today was really just, you know, pursue treatments that do work, that we do have good evidence to support that they're effective. Where we have good evidence to suggest that they're ineffective and guidelines are not recommending them, be very cautious, if not skeptical, about receiving these injections, because the reality is at present, we don't have great evidence to suggest that they're effective, and in fact, we probably have good evidence to suggest that they're not. Again, for the clinicians who are out there practicing on the delivery of PRP for for patients, be completely transparent with your patients. And for those of you who've taken this negative result to heart and have been uh, quite hostile in your response to these results, I guess we would charge you with coming up with what you would advocate should be the ideal platelet-rich plasma injection preparation and conduct a trial with more rigorous evidence to suggest that that's effective. And until you've got better evidence in a well-designed rigorous clinical trial, there is really no basis or substance to most of the claims that you're making. You know, science should in large part dictate what we practice in this very controversial area of medicine and where that gets ground down to sort of defamatory comments about individuals, it doesn't do you any justice. And it similarly doesn't do the science any justice. And again, we did this primarily because we wanted to find a more efficacious treatment for our patients. We didn't. We're disappointed by that probably as much as you are, if not more. And we continue that pursuit of uh, improved therapies for people who have osteoarthritis. So Kim, I'm going to stop rabbiting. And... Allow you an opportunity to say goodbye, but also thank you very much for your support of this podcast and your continued friendship and support in the pursuit of better care for people that have osteoarthritis.
4: Thanks, David. Look, it was a big trial, so I really wanted to thank Dr. Kate Patterson, who really coordinated the study down here with us and was the co-first author with me, Ben Metcalf, who did a lot of recruiting of participants down here, and then your team up there, Vicky Duong and Dr. Jill Isles, who lead your site as well as our radiologists, Castlereagh Radiology and Imaging at Olympic Park, and the Monash investigators as well who did the imaging and analysed those. So it's a big team effort with uh, lots of people involved and also the participants who gave up their time and, and came into the study. So thanks very much.
3: Yeah, no, it, it's been a wonderful privilege to have worked on this with such a wonderful team and to come out with results that I think are really quite clear and clearly negative is so, so important for the field. So Kim, thank you for your time, continued support, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. So hopefully you found today's topic helpful. It was a really helpful illustration for us about some of the controversy in the field, in particular, when you come out with a result that might not necessarily be as appealing to some aspects of the medical community as others. I think it's critical for people who have osteoarthritis that they evaluate the treatments that they're receiving, understand the evidence or lack thereof to support these particular treatments, understand the costs and the potential biases inherent in those people either who conduct the trials and or alternatively, those people who are redeeming remunerative benefit from giving you that injection. For anybody who's out there who's found our results particularly challenging, We're welcoming to do another trial of a preparation that you think is the magic panacea for all people that have osteoarthritis and to provide us funding at arm's length to allow us to do that trial. We're open to the idea that platelet-rich plasma might work. The challenge at the moment is the best current evidence suggests that it doesn't, and no guidelines are likely to change their stance until there is better quality evidence to suggest that it does work with the platelet-rich plasma injection preparation that you think does work. So on that note, this will be the last full episode for this year. It's been a challenging year for many of you, and we fully recognise that hopefully the pandemic will slide into dim, dark, distant memory. But we know that that's unlikely to be the situation. There are many parts of the world that unfortunately don't have the vaccination rates that we do that are still suffering from the consequences of this. And while they still suffer, the world will not be the same. I'd particularly like to thank the listeners for their support and remind you to subscribe and leave a review on our show. I'd particularly also like to thank Vicky for her wonderful support throughout the year. We'll plan to be back next year with a new season. But in the meantime, please go back and listen to past episodes. Obviously, a strong reminder, continue to take good care of yourself. And if you have an opportunity to do so, someone else as well. Thanks, and I'll talk to you very soon.
0: Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicki Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional.